0: please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Great morning. Happy Thanksgiving. I pray all of you had a wonderful time this week, spending time with loved ones and friends and neighbors. And I would also would be remiss if I didn't say this. I know sometimes the holidays can be tough. And for those in this room who maybe have lost someone this year or just a tough season of sorrow and, and pain, I pray for the Lord's blessing to be upon you as well this holiday season. But we know when you think about it, we have so much to be thankful for in this country, don't we? The list really is endless. And the fact that we can come here on this day, this Lord's day, and to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords freely and openly under no persecution, that is a true gift. From our Lord. And let us never take that for granted. If you have your Bibles open, I ask if you will turn to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. And if you're new to the Bible, if this is your first time with us or ever studying God's Word, take the Bible in half, cut it like a cake, and you will probably land in the book of Psalms. Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Listen to the reading of God's Word as you read all 10 verses together this morning. The earth. Is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He is established it upon the seas and founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You know, when you take a moment to think about something that you were thankful for, you've got to go back to the root. You've got to go back to the cause of why you were thankful. Think about it just for a moment of the many things that you're thankful for, even on this day, on this Lord's Day. Like I said just a moment ago, our list can become endless, and it it can be pages and pages along of all the many blessings that we have. And probably what happens when you think about that cause or that that life-changing experience that allows you to thank God and, and has changed your life for the good, you realize pretty quickly that you have a chain reaction that takes place. And you think of one blessing after another, one blessing after another. And for Christ, as I said just a moment ago, we have so much to be thankful for. As the songs we just sung the scripture we just heard in Psalm 33, all of it helps us to see that we have a redeemer, that we have a savior, and that is Christ the Lord. And when you realize how much Christ has saved us from, now you really are thankful. You're thankful because he has saved you from the wrath of God. You have been saved from your sin all because of Christ. And then what that does for the believer is it quickly moves within our hearts just a heartfelt worship of the king of kings. That's all we want to do is worship. When we begin to think about all that we have been saved from, all because of Christ. And that's exactly where we are in our time this morning in Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a psalm of worship. It is a psalm of worship. It is, David is, is writing this psalm for us to see this king who is on the throne. And there is a lot jam-packed in these 10 verses. But it is a liturgy, it is a public decoration of this king who reigns, who is holy, he is creator, he's victorious, and he demands honor and to be worshiped. All within 10 verses, all jam-packed. And this, what the psalmist does for us is he asks a question throughout the psalm, who is this king of glory? Who is he? And as he has this question, there's these pregnant answers that reveal to us massive truths of who God is. King David is the author of this psalm. And David, of all people, knew that there is only one person, only one divine being who can sit on the throne. And as we see right there in verse 1, it is the Lord. It is Yahweh. The Lord is who David says is on the throne. David, of all people, knew this. And if you know your Old Testament, you know David was king over Israel, he was anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And David was a man after what? God's own heart. He knew the Lord. He loved the Lord deeply. And yes, David had failures. David is, didn't have a clean slate. He committed murder. He committed adultery. But I do believe even after his confession of sin, and we see that in Psalm 51, even after that, I believe David in his heart of hearts wanted his life and as well as his kingdom to honor the Lord. I believe that, and that's what we see in Psalm 24. But there is more to Psalm 24 than just beats the eye. And if you're a good student, and I should give you a gold star, if you brought your Reformation Study Bible with you, you probably are reading the notes and realize that there is a lot more in Psalm 24. If you didn't bring it, I'm gonna give you a demerit. And so, just kidding. But But Psalm 24 packs a heavier punch than we realize. A lot of biblical commentators, if you were to flip there, if you're not already there in Psalm 24, as we just read, a lot of commentators, a lot of biblical historians, theologians, say that Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 are the Psalms that are the prophet, the priest, and the king. Psalm 22 is the prophet, Psalm 23 is the priest, and Psalm 24 is the king, and what I want to do for us, to give us more context, to give us a better understanding of this Psalm, I want us to just listen aloud, just for a moment, of key verses. And I want you to say to yourself, did these sound familiar? Have I heard these verses and other texts of Scripture? Flip over one page to your left and Psalm 22 for just a moment. And listen along with me in verse 1. My God, my God... Why have you forsaken me? Flip over to your right in Psalm 22, starting in verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot My tongue sticks to my jaws. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers circles me. Verse 17, excuse me, it's verse 16. I have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them. From my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? Jesus. Look with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, probably one of the most well-known parts of Scripture because we hear this at funerals. But notice what this, the Lord is my shepherd. Look how the shepherd is with me his sheep. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You're with me. You prepare a table. You anoint my head. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 23 is the priest, the great high priest, Jesus, who knows and sympathizes with our weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us of that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. If you were to turn into to John chapter 10, you would see Jesus as the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep. So we see all these connections within the Old Testament here in these three psalms pointing to Christ. Pointing to Christ. And the ESV, I'm not sure what version you're writing from, rightly titles this psalm, The King of Glory. But to give us more context of why this is a liturgical, a public declaration psalm, because in the context of where David is writing this, he's writing this of when the Ark of the Covenant is coming back to Jerusalem from Obed-Edom's house. If you have your Bibles still open, please turn to 1 Chronicles for just a moment. 1 Chronicles for just a moment. And I'm gonna set the stage of this arc, the Ark of the Covenant coming back home, coming back to the city of God. 1 Chronicles 15, and I'm gonna read starting in verse 25. 1 Chronicles 15. So David and the elders of Israel, commanders of thousands, went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. We see David in verse 27 was clothed with a robe of fine linen. They were carrying the Ark singing. The leader of the music with all singers, David, wore linen infod. And, and all of Israel bought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals and made loud music on harps and lyres. Turn back to Psalm 24. You can get the picture pretty quickly. This is no small moment of praise. Thousands of people are coming as the Ark of the Covenant is making its way back into the holy city. What a celebration of thousands of people celebrating this golden ark that carries the 10 commandments but the ark signifies and shows us something greater than two toned stone tablets it is what it's the presence of the lord that's what the Ark of the Covenant is symbolizing, and that's why the people are praising God with loud shouts of songs. All the symbols, all the trumpets being blown, the thousands of people, the sacrifices, everything is forming for us this public declaration of the, of the Lord, of Yahweh, the great I Am. And that's the context to where we are set this morning, and what a setting that it is And this is why it's a song of praise. And this is why it's a psalm of worship. And this is the king of glory. And so, let's move on just a little bit further now, and let's go into the text, and let's see this king of glory. And what we're going to notice in these 10 verses is that the king demands a lot from his subjects. He demands a lot from his subjects. And let's look together in Psalm 24, of what the king of glory demands and why David is showing us that the presence of the Lord is greater than anything in this this life can ever offer. Let's see this king of glory. Look with me, starting in our first point together. Point number one, you can see in your outline, the king's demands knowledge of who he is. Knowledge of who he is. He is the creator king. Look with me in verses one and two. Look how David starts off. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What David is doing for us in these first two verses is showing us that this king is also the creator king. He is the creator king. He is Lord over creation. He is the one who put creation into motion is what David is showing us in these two verses. But why does David start us off there? Why, of all things, does he want us to see the first point, this knowledge that we are supposed to have, that the Lord is creator? It's very much like if you were to think about a king in this modern age. Think about King Charles for a second. Your mind naturally thinks of his kingdom, the commonwealth of the United Kingdom, of how they are spread out all throughout this earth. When you think about a kingdom, you think about a location, a territory, a realm. Just like if you come to my house, I am the king of my house. That's a joke. And so, like Sanford and Son, but my empire. But, um, but anyway, but you get this idea that what David is painting for us is not the, the, the realm, the kingdom that he is saying is everywhere. It's creation. It's the universe. Look at the wordplay that he has here in these first two verses. Number one, i want to do a little bit of going forwards and backwards. Look at me in verse one. I'm going to start off with the Lords. There we see the divine name. It's Yahweh. It is the great I Am. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we walked through Exodus chapter 3 and saw the holiness of God. And when you go to the great I Am, and you look at Yahweh there in verse 1 in verse one in Psalm 24, you have to go back to when God told Moses his name is the I Am. And that I, the idea that God brings to Moses of this idea of the great I am is that he is self-existent. And from his self-existent naturally takes us to, to see that he is the creator. He's Lord of creation. And that's what we see here in verse 1. And then he describes the earth. Look with me for these these descriptors here that John, excuse me, that David uses. He first says the earth. What is the earth? It's the Hebrew for arets. It means the firmament, the ground, i.e. the planet that we live on. This word is used over 2,500 times in the Old Testament Scripture. It describes every living creature, every part of creation is brought forth and established and sustained by the hand of the Lord. That's what we see with this idea of the earth. Everything is sustained by his providential care. And then he goes on in verse 2. The world, this is the inhabitants, the people are under God's reign. There are over 6 billion people in this earth today on this planet. He is Lord over them. He knows each and every one of them. But here's the other side when we see world. We do see man, but we also have to see that he is Lord over even acts the acts of creation. Let me say it another way. The storm that brews in the Atlantic Ocean, from every action that, takes that man does, he knows about and this is the idea that's painted here with this word of the world. Going a little bit further in verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This idea we see in verse 2, we see a God who is a God of order. Turn in your Bibles back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1 for just a moment. And I want you to see what, we, what I mean by he is the God is a God of order, the king is a king of order. Listen to these famous verses here in verses 1 and 2 in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was of the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What we see here, before light, before the water, before day and night, before man was here, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. When we go to this idea of rivers and seas in Psalm 24, what we have to see is that nothing nothing existed until God spoke it into action, into being. God is the one who put it into order from that moment forward. He is a God of order. And we have to see that when David is writing for us in, verses, in verse two, the rivers and the seas He's Lord over it. And that's the picture we see here. And and, and listen, the Bible is replete of verses over and over and over again of painting for us and building this foundation for us to see the king is also the creator. We have to see that these go hand in hand. In your outline, I put Psalm 104, verses five through nine. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment the waters stood above the mountains. Look in Job chapter thirty-eight. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? Look with me to Proverbs eight twenty nine, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress notice his command his command. When he marked the foundations of the earth, God is the one who establishes and creates everything. And with this proper understanding that the king is the creator, you realize there is nothing under heaven itself that he is not Lord over. And that is a humbling fact for us as believers, isn't it? But that should give us and move within our hearts, praise and adoration to the king of glory. And this also helps us to see another point as God is the Creator King. Creation submits to the Lord. Creation submits to the Lord. That's what we see in these first two verses. So we have the knowledge of Creator, but also creation submits and obeys the King. If a storm brews, the wind blows, it's all because God has ordained it to be. And if He says it to blow, it blows. If He says it for to rain, it rains. Remember, when Jesus was on the boat with his disciples, he is the one, not the disciples, who calm the seas. And even the wind and the seas obey him. And what a way to introduce the king. This idea of creator king gives us that proper knowledge. And because this proper knowledge of the creator king allows us to worship as this psalm demands us to do. It moves within our hearts more affections for the Lord. And this is honestly, guys, Bible 101. We have to start at the beginning because out of Genesis one and two, is it sets the stage for how we understand everything else in the Bible. Everything starts in Genesis. And we have to understand this if we're gonna be walking closely with the Lord. Everything starts in Genesis one and two. Order, night and day, man, we even see salvation come in Genesis chapter three, where the someone is going to crush the head of the serpent, it's very much the proper understanding and knowledge does so much for us. You remember the old schoolhouse rock videos? Remember what their the quick little line used to say? Knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. When we have that proper knowledge, we're able to think and process and have a worldview that allows us to determine to see and see through the lens of all things. And that view that we need to have is a God-centered, a creator-king worldview. It's very much like if you were going to become a citizen in the United States. If you're going to become a citizen, you have to go through a naturalization process. And if you are familiar with this process, you know you have to take basically a civics course and in this course, you're learning about U.S. history. You're learning about the government. All those things are teaching you how to be a proper citizen in the United States of America. And so when you, be, you become a citizen, when you're sworn in, you know how the world, excuse me, the United States works. You know how the government works. You've got a good understanding, a good firm foundation of how you are supposed to live in this country. And this is what the knowledge of the God of, as Creator King does for us. This sets the stage so much for us as believers because then it moves within our hearts to have two responses. And I put this in your outline. Number one, all things are created, governed, and blessed by God. All things are governed, created, and blessed by God. It's a Romans 1136 application. For from him and, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. All things are governed by God. John 15, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. This is the same idea we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses six through eight. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the what? The growth. Look how Jesus even teaches his disciples. In Matthew chapter six, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus teaches us to pray every single day for the daily graces and the abundant mercy of our Lord. Even if you look in Matthew chapter 14, how did the 5,000 people get fed? When the Lord took the loaves, he blessed it, and 5,000 people were fed. Everything comes from God. Everything is governed by him, and everything is even blessed by him. We can even see this within ministry, the work that we are doing here at Capitol. Remember Paul's encouragement to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, preach the word in season and out of season. Believers, if you're working in ministry, there are going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. Good seasons of blessing and tough seasons when you just don't see any fruit coming. But we are supposed to, as Luke chapter 10 reminds us, keep our eyes forward. Don't look back on the plow. Keep being faithful. But we have to be This proper mindset as the Lord as creator helps us to realize all things come from him. The second thing is this. With that proper knowledge, it humbles us. It humbles us, doesn't it? If everything comes from him, what are we doing? We are to be a people totally dependent on this king. I was reading when Queen Elizabeth died all the things that you had to do when you were to have an audience with the queen. You have to, one, you have to be summoned. You, or when you're in her presence, you, were supposed, you can't speak unless you're spoken to first. You have to say her name in the right way, and when it's time to go, she tells you when it's go, time to go. Quite funny how you saw all these little nuances when you were coming to the queen. But you would do all those things because of the proper understanding of who she is. That's why you do it out of respect and honor to the position and the title that she holds. But here, in these two verses, right out of the gate, this is the king of glory. This is the king of kings. This is the Lord, by the word of his, from the, of his mouth, spoke creation into existence. This is, goes against, every, I believe, in these two verses, goes against every form of human pride that when we realize that we are totally dependent on our Lord, we should bow and worship. And by the way, this is the proper stance of the believer we see throughout Scripture. Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Proverbs 22, verse four, The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. A proper understanding and the knowledge of the Holy One shapes everything. It shapes everything and how we view this world. And especially as we come and we worship this king. So now look with me into our second point. Our second point. So the knowledge of of God as a creator, as king, that all things are by him. The earth yields to his lordship. See what now the king's demands as we come into his presence. Our second point is this. The king demands purity. The king demands purity. I was reading a biography, or excuse me, I was listening to a biography on my Audible a couple of months ago of Abraham Lincoln. I actually have not really read much about Abraham Lincoln. And what I found fascinating in this one biography that I was listening to on Audible was that Abraham Lincoln would allow anybody of the U.S. citizens to come to the White House. He had a reoccurring, almost a standing weekly uh, schedule time block on his calendar where people could come to the White House and to be able to see the President of the United States. Could you imagine that in today's time? But people would. And as, as I was listening to his biography, people would have come with all, a whole host of different problems. In this biography, a lot of times people were coming to him with personal complaints about things that were taking place in their own neck of the woods. Could you imagine that? That's what the president is listening to. But what we see in verses three through six is the quite opposite effect. No one can come simply into the presence of the king. No one can simply come to this king of glory like we see with that example of Abraham Lincoln. In verses three through six, we see A requirement of the highest degree has to be made in order to see the king. What is it? It's purity. It's purity. So think about it. If you were to come to the gate and you were to see a guard, this is what he would ask you. Hey, Kenny, have you been pure today? Well, yes, I have. Since I'm perfect, I can come on in. And so I would have no problem. You would have a problem. But that's a joke. But what we see here is that this is what the God would ask. Have you been walking in purity? Have you been walking in holiness? How would you answer that question? And to go a little bit further and deeper, is your heart been made pure? Pretty serious requirement, isn't it? This goes far greater than coming to see back in Abraham Lincoln. This is something that we would not see if we were to go to England and have an audience with King Charles. He wouldn't ask us, have we been walking in purity and in holiness? But the King eternal, immortal, invisible, God-only wise, this is what he requires for us to be pure, for us to be holy. And look with me in verses 3 through 6 of what this requirement of being pure looks like. Look with me starting in verse 3. Who shall ascend to the hill? Who shall stand in his holy place? Number one, it is one who has clean hands. This is not your mom talking to the little son, hey, wash your hands before dinner. This is not what we see here in verse three. Clean hands denotes actions that honor the Lord. It's honorable actions. Let me say it another way. It is one who is walking in integrity. Let me say it another way. It is one who's being obedient to the word of God, being Seeing the righteousness of God that is stated in the Bible and following that with their whole heart. It is, the Bible also sees this word picture of clean hands of one who is not defiled with false idol worship. Not dealing with false idol worship. You're not worshiping another idol. You're not breaking the first and the second command. And the Bible is replete over and over and over again with having clean hands. Look with me in Isaiah chapter one for a moment. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Why? Even when you make prayers, I will not listen. Because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil from your deeds before my eyes cease to do evil. Look with me further into Isaiah chapter 33. Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes. Look with me into the New Testament. Matthew chapter 27, a familiar passage for us. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was was starting to begin, he took the water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See See to it yourselves. Pilate thought he was passing off Jesus, but in fact he wasn't. He was guilty like so many of us for the death of Jesus on the cross. Look with me on this other requirement. You also have to have a pure heart, pure. In the Hebrew, it's cleanliness. It's to be set aside. It's not to be defiled. It's a rare word that is used a majority of the time that we see in the poetic books of the Bible. I love Webster's Dictionary of this. It's not, the word means not mixed with any other substance or material. Can this be said of you? When you think about what you think about during the day. What comes out of your mouth? Has it been mixed with any substance of sinful nature or desires? That's what a pure heart. And this is what we see throughout the scripture as well. Psalm 73, this idea of demanding a pure heart. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Turn over to your right to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment. And I think this is a wonderful, if not the pinnacle, for us to see here this idea of purity that the Lord requires. Matthew chapter 5. Look with me in verse 8. This is right in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. Starting in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you were to look back just a few verses you would see that there's a progression within these beatitudes. Poor in spirit, there is the kingdom. Meek shall inherit the earth. Hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. Mercy will receive mercy. Pure shall see God. Those who are at peace, they'll be called sons. Those who are persecuted, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Notice the progression. And these are the characteristics that we are supposed to have as believers. We are called to be pure. We are called to be seeking the things above. We are called to be walking in holiness. Pure is a shocking term. It's shocking because when we think about it and we listen to it through the lens of Scripture, we realize pretty quickly that all fall short of the glory of God. No one is pure. All of of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. And why is this shocking to us? It's because it's an indictment on our lives. We don't want to hear that we're sinners. We don't want to hear this type of language because we have to acknowledge before ourselves and most importantly, a holy God, we're wrong. We are in sin. There's no hope for us when we begin to think about the plight that we are in within our own sinful nature. I told you a few weeks ago, I think I was telling my life class that I was sharing the gospel with a man in a restaurant, and when I began to share the gospel to him and I got to the hard part, by the way, you're a sinner. What did he do? I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Began to not be mean to me, but again, quickly turned the finger back onto me. What are you saying? How dare you call me a sinner? Those are the words he was saying. People don't like to hear that. But the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, you are. I am. We're sinners. Look with me further. It gets even worse. Who does not lift his soul hands to what is false? This idea we see here is in the context of Psalm 1. The way of the wicked. The way of the wicked will perish. They will stand with other sinners. They will be seated in the seat of scoffers. They do not delight in the law of the Lord. They do not meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. They're like chaff that the wind drives away and they will ultimately perish. Goes even deeper. Does not swear deceitfully. It's honesty. It's not breaking the ninth commandment. He's not a liar. It's one who is walking in the truth of scripture, being obedient to scripture. As we heard also, probably in grade school, from your mom, from your dad, honesty is what? The best policy. Again, I've said it numerous times, I never heard that from my mom, and so I was a pretty squeaking clean kid, but y'all got to laugh. That was a joke. <laughs> Unbelievable. Man, Grant comes up here, not a laugh either. But, um, but, this is the, but this is the demand that we see in Scripture. He calls his people to be holy. Leviticus 19.2, be holy as I am holy. And we see this repeated all throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God and walk in his way, love him, and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Micah 6:8, probably a very familiar passage to some of you in this place. Well who he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And recall even the context of what the psalm was written. First Chronicles chapter thirteen. You don't have to flip there in your Bible. or read it for us. But if you were to flip back into First Chronicles chapter thirteen, look what happened when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back into the holy city, into Jerusalem. Look what was taking place. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chittim, Uzzah put out his hand to the tar- take hold of the ark, for an oxen stumbled and the anger of the lord was kindled against uzzah and he struck him down there because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before god david was angry this was a shocking everything stopped it was shocking to what took place but what did the lord require holiness purity not anyone can touch the ark There were demands that we see in Leviticus and as well as in Deuteronomy. If you're going to carry it, you've got to do this, this, and that, it, this, and that. It is a righteous requirement from the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. He demands purity. The ark symbolized the presence of God, and not everybody can come into his presence. Now, the reality is this. And we look at the Ark of the Covenant. And when we look at the righteous requirement and the demand that God makes for us, that also means this. God takes very serious your sin. Takes very serious your sin. We have to have a high view of sin. What do I mean by that? It means that God sees all. It's quorum deo. There's nothing hidden from the sight of God. Just because you're driving in your car and you're beating the dashboard and you're angry over something, you're anxious about something, you're, you're having the lust of the flesh. You're coveting over something. There's some sort of man made object, idol, that has gravitated your eyes and the attention of your heart, and you want it and you can almost taste it. All those things and more are sin before a holy God, and He sees it all. None of us are pure. No one is right, righteous. No, not one. We see over and over again, even in the New Testament. Look at Paul's letters. How many times does he tell the believers to flee these things? He says it to Timothy. Avoid these things. Watch out. You must not be, these things should not be even known among you. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of the sexual immoral person. What did he tell them to do? Get him out. Look in Matthew 18. Go to your brother if he won't confess. Get rid of him. He's done. He's not walking like a true follower of Christ. We are to be people who are holy. And the question we have to ask ourselves, just like the psalmist does, can you ascend to the hill? Can you come into the presence of the king of glory? Are you walking in purity? Are you walking in holiness? I pray for the Holy Spirit is working within you even as we are walking through God's word, convicting you of sin, convicting me of sin, to see none of us, none of us are walking and in are our, in our perfect. So how do we flee? How can we come to the hill? Look with me in verse five. Here's our answer. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Right there in verse 5 is a golden nugget. This is like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. I've got the golden ticket. And whether you catch it or not, I'm going to tell you it's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The reformers would be so proud of me. I'm pulling it out for you here in verse 5. It's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is faith, not works, that's going to save us. That's what justifies us. It's the Mount Everest of our faith right here in verse 5, and this is the answer. It's pulled out from Galatians 2, verses 15 through 16. I put that in your outline. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified by his works of the law, but what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. When the Lord regenerates our hearts, gives us the ability to believe, gives us the ability to have faith, and we believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, right at that moment, guess what happens? The sanctification process begins. Justification and sanctification are holding hands all along our Christian journey. And what is sanctification? It's purging us from our evil desires, as Grant prayed in our pastoral prayer. It's purging us from our indwelling sin. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 reminds us, transforming us from one glory to another. Because remember, the end game is for us to be transformed in the image of Christ. And if that's the end goal, then there's got to be a lot of sanctifying work that has to take place in this life. And this is what happens. Turn with me also into the New Testament to Luke chapter eight, 18. Luke 18 for just a moment. And I want us to see a great example of this idea of the justification by faith alone, as well as the sanctifying work that takes place in the equation of faith and walking in faith and what happens. Luke 18. He also told this parable who trust in themselves. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. For I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to this house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How did the tax collector know to come? How did he know by the grace and the mercy of the Lord he would have forgiveness? By faith. And that's why he came. And that's why he's confessing and only knows by its grace, only by the mercy of God, can he know that his sins are forgiven. And this is no small task, ladies and gentlemen. This is no small task for us to walk into purity. But listen, here's the good news thanks be to Christ. Because it is through Christ alone that we're able to flee these things. It is through Christ alone that we are able to avoid these things. It is through Christ alone. That even in the darkest valley of the shadow of death, even when we sin, we feel sin crouching at our doors, we can look to Christ, the King of glory, for help. This is the anchor. This is the lifeboat that we see in Scripture extended to us. This is what for Christ alone is what forgives us of our sins. He died for our sins, past, present, and future. Hold on to that. And if you're not a believer, I plead with you with everything in my heart. Come to faith in Jesus Christ today. Do not harden your heart. I beg you. There are eternal consequences behind it. And I beg you, if you don't know this Jesus, come talk to me again after the service. I beg you, do not harden your heart. But also, here is the application for us as believers. For the Christian, We can take hope because Christ is going to help us to flee these things, to walk in purity. It breaks my heart to see fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling in sin. And when you begin to talk to them, when you begin to diagnose what's going on inside of their heart, what you hear is me, 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 and I, I, I. What we don't realize is Christ has overcome sin, not you and not me. That's how we overcome sin. Is it hard? Yes. Is it an overnight process? Not all the time. And I give you a few steps in your outline for you to be able to hold on to and for you to be able to flee these things and to walk in purity. But the first thing we have to do is to confess our sins. If you're not a believer, this is the first step. Confess your sins today. No one is righteous, no, not one, as Romans 3.10 reminds us. Confess your sins to God now. But if Christian if there is something weighing on your soul, if there is something weighing down in your conscience, you're afraid to acknowledge it, confess it now, right now, before the Lord. 1 John one nine reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to what? To forgive us of our sins. Repent is the second thing. That is to turn away completely opposite direction from our sin. Repent. Then we pray for the help and the and the grace of our Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit to flee these things. The other thing is we have to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. This is what transforms our minds, as Romans 12:1 reminds us. We have to be people of the word. But we also can't just be in the word. We also have to obey the word. It's easy for us just to read it. The hard part is to take it out on the street and to apply it in our daily life. But thank God for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. And then, of course, we can see further in your outline I put, attend church. I mean, that's a key. That's a key. We need each other. We need to gather together as the saints of God. We need this. It's amazing what coming together as a body of Christ does for the soul of a person. Grant and I were here, I feel like just he and I, and even though he got to look at this beautiful face during covid And so, but when it's just he and I just filming a sermon by ourselves, that ain't it. It's to be able to build gospel-centered community, to be able able to encourage one another onto love and to good deeds, to pray for one another, to be with one another. There's something beautiful about the assembly of the saints coming together And listen, I'll tell you something I pray for myself daily. Psalm 119.9. How does a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And this is the requirements. But this is also what we see from Scripture, the battle plan for us to be walking in holiness. I love that quote I put in your outline from C.S. Lewis. He says it best. It is safe for Jesus to say, the pure in heart shall see God. For only the pure in heart want to. Do you wanna see God? Is that a desire of your heart? What do you think about when you're alone? What are you dwelling on? What are you anxious over? That reveals who your God is a lot of times. Can you say, like we see in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. Do you desire to be in the presence of the Lord like David is writing for us in Psalm 24? Do you delight in the things of God? That's why He, the Lord, the King of glory, that's why he demands for his people to be pure, to walk in holiness. This is a high requirement, but one that we can attain not on our own effort, but all because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. All because of Jesus Christ. So now, let's look together on a third point. So the earth is prepared, his people are now prepared, and what takes place? The king enters and we worship, and we worship. And notice right there, right before verse 7, and these last few verses in 7 through 10, Selah, a pause. And I think it is fitting as we reflect on God as the Creator King and how the Creator King demands for his subjects to be pure and to walk in holiness. And now we are prepared to worship. And look at the picture that David writes for us. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. What a fitting response to the end of this psalm. With this knowledge, with the hope that Jesus is Savior, and the knowledge that we can come into his presence all because of Christ, all we want to do is worship. That is the proper response of the subjects of the king. And what a proper response for us. The ascension ceremony that we're going to see maybe sometime next year of King Charles, when he is crowned king, doesn't stand a chance to what we see here doesn't stand a splendor of chance to what we see here. And look at the descriptor again, descriptors again that David is using in these last few remaining verses. Notice over five times the king of glory is used. Look at this term described of the, of the Lord, the king of glory. Glory in the Hebrew is kabod. It is to give weight to, a word that we have uh, described and talked about a lot here at Capitol. It's to give honor to, splendor, glory. It is the full glory of God that David is writing. It transcends all that we know and all that we can comprehend. It is that we will see one day, that will be the light that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no sun, S-U-N, but the glory of God will be our light. Can you imagine that? And total perfection, And total perfection, No more tears, no more death, no more sin. Yet the glory of God will be our radiant light. Isn't that amazing to think about? But notice when he moves on a bit further in this term of the king of glory, David also knows that the full radiance of the glory of God is the Messiah, is Christ the king. The full radiance of God's glory is found in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 3 reminds us of this. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the full radiance of the glory of God. And notice a little bit further. Again, the question is asked. Who is the king of glory? There's a pregnant question there. There's a lot to it. What is it? He is described as the Lord, strong and mighty, and Lord, mighty in battle. He is a warrior. He is victorious. Over what? Sin and death. Jesus is the only one who can claim victory over sin and death. The Lord has done this. This echoes, if you are a student of the Old Testament, maybe a familiar passage in Exodus chapter 15 with the song of Moses. There, if you were to flip back into Exodus 15, you would see it is right on the heels of the Red Sea experience for Israel. You may remember that the people of Israel, remember Moses spreads his hands wide, the people of Israel walk on dry ground right through the heart of the Red Sea. Remember what happens? Pharaoh's army is right behind him. The people begin to panic. They get, people of Israel go through dry land, but what happens to Pharaoh's army? The sea collapses over it, swallows up, conquers the army of Pharaoh. The story of the Exodus, even the Red Sea incident, is a picture of Christ overcoming the enemy. He swallowed up death, and he is the one who is victorious. And notice, that's why the heads and the gates and the doors are all lifted up. But notice, there's a little bit of a head change, a name change, excuse me. He says, the Lord of hosts. And why is he saying this? The Lord of hosts is a title that is describing everything of God. It's very familiar to the King of glory. We think about the glory of God, it is all of who God is. Same with the picture that we learned a couple of weeks ago with the holiness of God. It's all of who the Lord Yahweh is. He is the preserver of the elect, He is Redeemer, He is warrior, He is Savior, He is Grace, He is Mercy, all those things is in this title of the Lord of hosts. Famous theologian Herman Bavick says this of this title the King in the fullness of his glory, who surrounded by the regimented host of angels, governs the whole world as the Almighty, and his temple receives the honor and the acclamation of all his creatures. What a name change. But I also think the name change also signifies something else. It also helps us to see the coming and the going of Christ. I believe it does show this. And this is why he is the king of glory and he is the Lord of hosts. Listen, the first time Jesus came, as we celebrate, as you can see with even these decorations point us to, it's Christmas. Jesus came as Savior. He came through the humility of being born in a manger. He came quiet, even though the whole angel a whole host of angel proclaimed there before the wise man, nonetheless he was born in a manger and a humble setting, for a mission to save us from our sins. And as we know in Matthew twenty-eight, he has then ascended to the right hand of God the Father and is alive now, right now, and sitting there at the Father's side. But here is something else we don't always talk about here in the church. He's coming back. He's coming back. Not only is he coming back, he's coming back with an army. Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16 shows us this picture. He's returning with an army with the sound of the trumpet. And there we will see him fight and put the enemies under his footstool and the final consummation of the kingdom of God will take place. And there we will, as Re- Revelation 4 and 5 picture for us we will sit and he is the lamb who is on the throne and we will worship forever and ever and ever and ever what a beautiful picture that we see here and that's why we have the name change this is king jesus this is the king of glory this is emmanuel who is god with us we don't have to have the ark of the covenant We don't have to make a trek back to the holy city, to Israel to see the Ark of the Covenant. There's only one person who has seen it. That's Indiana Jones. And now we don't know where it is. And now, but thanks be to God by coming forth through Christ that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we are his temple and we are called to glorify the, the king of glory. We are called to give him praise. And we are called to be people who humble ourselves before him with the knowledge as creator, with his majestic power and glory, and to him he is honored. Let me close our time with this. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He rightly said about this psalm, it is possible that you were saying, I shall never enter the heaven of God. For I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Looked into Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him. Follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too. Notice his words if you trust him. But how can I get to the character described, say you? The spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit and has all his virtues wrapped up in it. What a hill for us to ascend. But what a great pleasure it is to know that Jesus climbed the hill. And on that hill he died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty that we deserved that we deserved, died a criminal's death on our behalf. But thanks be to God, as we know, in the third day it rose again. And then who is alive, and as we said, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that is why we are thankful. All because of Christ. I'm gonna end our time, I think it's fitting, in worship. And in your outline, you can see there, there is a hymn, and it is probably my favorite hymn. And it is, rejoice, the Lord is king. And it is written from Psalm 24. And in fact, um, my my music seminary professor and I rewrote this song for Catherine to come down the aisle on our wedding day. Um, This The rejoice, the Lord is king. For the people, not to see us up there, but to see why we're here. And I believe this psalm... So, excuse me. This song is fitting, and I'm going to read just a few verses of our, to close our time, to end our time in God's Word and worship. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing, and triumph forevermore. Jesus, the Savior, reigns. The truth of the God of truth and love. He has purged our stains. He took his seat above. Stanza three. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to Jesus given. Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and Judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Who is this King of glory? It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, you are the king of glory. You are majestic, you are glorious, you are altogether lovely. And Father, we know truly what a gift is to be in your presence here in this place on this Lord's day. Father, I do pray that we will see these righteous requirements that you demand of your subjects, that we will take them seriously, that, Father, these are not suggestions, but, Father, these are commands that your word gives us to follow through on. Father, rejoice the Lord is king. Father, thank you for sending Christ. That is our hope. That is our joy, and that is why we sing. Father, may these words rest deep within our heart. And I pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at CapitalCommunityChurch.com.